wonder Death by DVD even got a start. <laughs> this episode is the final entry to Monster Meltdown. Death by DVD's celebration of Halloween 2021. It's been creepy getting sweepy with all you cool ghouls, but I've got a crypt to scrub. I'll be sure to bid adieu and dust a cobweb or two before the dungeon door closes. Don't you worry. <laughs> but it's time now for Sweep Show. <laughs> I like to call this one Within the Black. This is Death by DVD. It's Monster Month, our celebration of Halloween 2021. This week we're exploring monster movies from the 1990s and 2000s. With me, a man who was shot seven times, stabbed four, bitten by a squirrel, and blew Mick Jagger recently. It's I, Alexander Nash. It's fantastic. The problem isn't that I'm blowing him. The problem is that it's Mick Jagger. Because Mick Jagger's not an attractive man. Never has been. I don't care he was in the Rolling Stones. Not a fan. He was good enough for Marianne Faithful, and he should be good enough for you. This is the final episode of Monster Meltdown, our month celebrating monsters. So we started in the 1950s, and then we moved into the 1960s. The very first episode was Creature from the Black the 1960s, The Green Slime, an excellent movie. I think we both really, really had fun with that. Last week, we had, again, an excellent movie, Blood Freak. Watch it, find it. But now we're here with the 1990s and the 2000s. I think maybe the most troubling era for monster movies, maybe more so now than ever, monster films has come back, and I, Alexander Nash, brought this up on the very first episode, but not in the way that we ever imagined them that they would. Monster movies, you've, you've said this many, many times before, but what formerly was exploitation is now art, and what used to be art is now exploitation. And in the sense of monster movies, I think we enter an era with the 1990s where almost everything is... It went back to exploitation. <laughs> well, it's very sci-fi based, too. Like, it's very hard yeah. to look and try and find a monster movie that isn't something that came from space or dealing with space. And that's mostly because James Cameron's Aliens and after that. I mean, then you had fucking The Abyss, too, in the 1990s. So it was still really popular. You're coming off of Predator in the late 80s. So there obviously is a big bubble for sci-fi alien monster movies, which to me, I, I feel kind of puts a dapper on things because I think they're almost two different genres that you have a monster movie, but then you have sci-fi or space or alien monster movies. And I, I want to focus more on, you know, creature from the Black Lagoon rubber monster movies, but finding them that are... I don't want to say good enough to talk about are hard because the movie we're going to discuss here briefly, I wouldn't... I wouldn't say it's good. <laughs> it's not good. I would. There's no wouldn't say it's not a good movie. It's it from is a good place. Mid nineties, made for TV, ultra cheap sci-fi channel. Not even Asylum era here. This is just straight up when Sci-Fi Channel was showing a lot of 1970s TV shows, uh, showing a lot of like you know movies that they would you know pay for licensing rights of, and they weren't really producing too much content. And this was the era like in the mid to late 90s, and they actually started to produce a little bit of content and kind of fund some some like films for their channel, and they would really advertise them endlessly. I remember this one being advertised like crazy, and I remember um, 
a mini series they did did called the the town that turned to dust. I think Ron Perlman was in it. I remember the fucking ads for that one, like constantly on the Sci-Fi Channel. But this film, I watched it in 1996 when it premiered, and I was disappointed by it and went, Aww. that was kind of cheap and not very good. And I hadn't really gone back to it until randomly on a whim, Hank decided to uh, watch this on Tubi. And he's like, within the rock, that movie, uh, I kind of liked it. It was rocking in some ways. And then I was like, I don't remember being very good. Uh, I don't think it. I've I ever said it was rocking in some ways. You said you enjoyed it. I, I appreciate the pun that you tried to lay on me, but I don't think I said at, at all that it was rocking. I'll, I'll defend that I enjoyed it. I watched it again today because um, I'm a stupid asshole <laughs> and I enjoyed it. I'm laughing at me and it's OK if you guys want to laugh at me, too. I'm not laughing with me, but laugh at me, because if you've seen this movie, I don't. <laughs> Well, I can actually very honestly explain, and I will in a little while, why I enjoy this movie. But it is almost entirely one of those uh, ironic things. You know, like, I like the movie because it's so bad. But it it really actually comes from a good place. Like, everything about this movie is right. Like, they, they took all the right steps. Everything is very professional. It's shot very professionally. And it just... No money. It missed, yeah, it, it no money no and it money missed the this. target. And it's 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 very very obviously a knockoff of Alien. But it seems like they had so much more to work with, and they and keep... more like a ripoff of uh, like something like Leviathan as well, because yes, it's the same yes. basic premise that it fits into that research station, or we have to go to a planet. Uh, sci-fi wise to do some sort of thing below the planet whatever with this thing and they, but they keep adding stuff to the story for me that i thought almost made it hysterical that every time you get to a new point of the story it's like yeah but guess what this thing it buries the people and then comes back and eats them later can you believe that it keeps just growing and growing it's it's one weird beanstalk of a movie and to be so fucking cheap to have no budget it's it's laughable that they keep introducing all of these ideas and then the other reason this movie is, is completely amazing is a guy named Xander Berkeley who did no acting whatsoever. I, I don't believe he acted a single day while on set. He just showed up, probably hungover, chain-smoked, and they filmed it. I, he might have not even known there was a movie being shot, and uh, you cannot convince me that he, that man did any form of acting in this movie. But holy shit, he's the biggest dick ever. I, I, I can't think of anyone next to the dick in Die Hard that is as awful. He's worse than Burke. He really, yeah. He's a, a son of a son of a bitch. Well, like, okay. I can respect Within the Rock for having, like, lofty aspirations of where it wanted to go and trying to be a bigger movie than it is. Because this was at a point, because it was like the late 80s and early 90s is really when these kind of movies were, like, at their height. And 96 is a little bit later. They want to kind of cash in a little bit and do kind of an exploitation version of something like that. And I can admire them trying to push those boundaries, but the the final results, because there is some early CG in it that is fucking abysmal. It looks like Amiga graphics. The story itself, it, it could be kind of interesting because the overall idea here is there is a moon from a distant faraway galaxy that has become like a meteor that's coming close to the Earth, and if it collides with the Earth, it destroys everything. So they have to get people up there to blow up the moon. Or and not really blow it up because the military just wants to shoot it. And it'll cause a crazy meteor shower that'll kill everybody anyway. So they have to literally take drills, bore holes into this moon, make it a bowling ball, and put like nuclear reactors in the holes so it can have like space shuttle properties and kind of 
fly it off course from the, and that's the whole point we're on this moon. It's the whole point they're in this giant drill machine digging and they find what they find, which is I will admit the monster suit, the rubber monster suit for the creature is pretty fucking good because the movie was directed by Gary Tunnicliffe, famous special effects artist. He also did the uh, monster suits for the next movie we'll be talking about. Directed a few Hellraiser movies, some of the later, later Hellraiser movies. And pretty much did did Dub Bradley's makeup for Hellraiser from like, I think three on. So there's charm to this movie. We've established that. I really don't think there's a lot else going on for it. It's 1996. Nash has said that a few times, but the movie is powered by this very weird, like funk power metal soundtrack. And the ending credits are the, it's the greatest Nirvana knockoff I've I've ever heard in my entire life, but nothing in the movie is, is fitting. So they're doing all this drilling that Nash was talking about, but they're just wearing paintball masks that have microphones inside of them. They play this ridiculous Atari graphics video game, and there's just, there's a lot of character development. It's one of those movies that, because it's an alien knockoff, you can identify and start connecting with characters just because it's like, oh, well, that guy's kind of cool and laid back, that guy's a dick, and we've got the cool rockin' chick who's Robert Patrick's wife, because this movie was produced by Robert Patrick, Good old Robert Patrick, the T-1000 from Terminator. Or, if you're an asshole, you might know him even better as the star of From Dust Till Dawn 2, Texas Blood Money. That's where I always recognize him from. Good old Robert Patrick. Yeah, Texas Blood Money. <laughs> the only movie that has a shot from a fucking oscillating fan because Scott Spiegel is a psychopath. I don't... I, I, okay, I thought I would be able to maybe explain why I liked this movie more or less, uh, aside from saying I'm just an asshole and I like it, but I guess that's where I'm stuck I'm going to guess. I'm just going to throw a guess out there. I think part of the reason you like this is there's a certain nostalgic beat. And not that you loved it when you were a kid, but it's being transported back to the, like, the mid-90s when you would see this kind of stuff on TV a lot. And by this time, I was already out of finding pleasure in those terrible movies, but th- it would have been more appropriate for your age to get kind of involved in something like this. It kind of does, but at the same time, it just is one of those weird freakish things where I just like it. Like there's nothing redeemable for the movie. It's got, it's got Dwayne Whitaker. It's got that guy from sleepwalkers, the kid from sleepwalkers, Brian Krause, one of the dudes from the stoned age. There you go. Good old Brian Krause. You can't forget him. And of course, Barbara Patrick, who is one of the greatest characters because her nickname is Nukem. So everybody's going to like her. It does. I mean, I can, I can agree with you on that point. It does have a bit of nostalgic to almost like a, there was a brand of G.I. Joe knockoffs called Coors and the back of them had all these ridiculous stories and what the characters could do similar to the back of a G.I. Joe box. And they all had names, stuff like yeah, it's, it's Samantha Newcomb Rogers and their little mission statements were all very similar to this. So there is almost a a, a toy aspect to it. Like, this is a spinoff series of something that you played with or an imaginatory thing from being a kid. I I just, I don't know, there's something attractive about it to me. I think it being so cheap. Uh, We discussed this with the green slime. There's almost something adorable about it to me. When the movie begins, uh, aside from the Earth stuff, and you finally get to see what's going on on the Son of Galileo, which is the asteroid that this movie is taking place on, it's just like Tonka toys that have been painted yellow. Everything is very, very silly. See, I can get where your, your green slime comparison comes in. Cause it is very similar in that vibe. But to me, I don't have as much 
I don't know if nostalgia is the right word because like with green slam and go back and look at a lot of, all of the miniatures and find them adorable. See, I, I just don't feel nostalgia though. I think that's one of my problems. I think a lot of it is just how it's just the artistry isn't there for me in the film. I think yeah, well, I mean, along I those agree. same lines, because there really isn't a heavy deal of artistry, but I guess a lot of it is the imagination that's involved with it. Like um, Dwayne Whitaker's character is the guy that's in charge of taking care of the generator and the generator powers this uh, atmosphere cloak. So all of them can breathe essentially the terraforming and smoke in it i don't know how that works that's an oxygen like rich environment that shit would just flame up immediately and that's where i'm going with it he's chain smoking xander berkeley i think smokes no little uh, no less than three cigarettes per scene all of his screen time he's got a lit cigarette in and around his mouth but it's a lot of what the characters have to do and and that's some that's the actors acting and it's believable. I mean, Dwayne Whitaker's in this ridiculous get-up. His oxygen tanks aren't hooked up to anything, and he's cursing and kicking sand that's supposedly out in space. It's it's just as ridiculous. I guess there is a lot of good comparisons to the green slime because I brought this up when we were discussing that of how much I loved them throwing the guns at the monsters and the idea that there's just no gravity. And to me, what's more amusing is the green slime kind of gets a get-out-of-jail-free card because it's a 1960s movie and it's a very cheap 1960s movie. But this was a budgeted, I don't want to say well done in the aspects of, of, you know, writing and things like that, but well done production. All of Everyone involved was a produ- professional. The crew, the, the people that produced this, this is not an independent film, so I'm going to say well done in that sense. And it just turns out so unequivocally awful. <laughs> There's just nothing redeeming at it at all, but I get to the well, okay, end of the well, movie and I like let's it. Go back to the very beginning of the film where we have this intro that's two million years in the past and it's some kind of like where they're like imprisoning the creature at the beginning and th- these guys in suits are supposed to be kind of humanoid aliens or something, I guess. And it's a, like this very like slow motion scene with uh, a lot of mood and style put to it. We abandon all that for two million years in the future, and the rest of the movie looks really cheap. And we never really get into the origin of the monster. You set up this like alien race that has like technology two million years ago, and we're not really going to get into too much of that after that. We're, it, that's just how the creature shows up, okay? It's like, well, you why don't you write some more of this in it? Why don't you like go and investigate it a little bit more and try to figure like out the deeper meaning to the story? But it's mostly just about we got to kill this monster. Once they do glaze over the history of the monster, that's one of the most fascinating things of the movie because these people respected and feared it almost as a god, so they trapped it and eventually hid it almost in hopes that it was going to be found someday, but it was in an essentially locked prison floating through space that over time things began forming on it and became the son of Galileo asteroid. So I thought that was like, oh, wow, that's kind of clever, that's fun, and then we never go back to it again. And they bring up such fun horrifying things when it comes to this monster that it likes to take its prey and bury it and then it goes and digs it up later and eats it why the fuck do you tell us something so cool and you don't show us at the same time and i i will give the like the last the movie is very slow paced it's about 45 to 50 minutes until we really even see the monster and we barely see the suit and then almost the entire cast gets picked and everyone he thought was going to live just gets slowly picked off uh Nukem unfortunately dies we lose good old cat boy Brian Krause we're left with the last people that you'd think would be imaginable in the movie who also got nearly no screen time and then suddenly who has been missing the whole movie Xander Berkeley reappears and he's a James Bond-esque villain that is more concerned I would jump platinum <laughs> yeah he steals the platinum even though 
Earth is going to get destroyed. Where is he going to sell the platinum? I don't. His greed knows no <laughs> bounds, dude, because he doesn't. The army will take care of it. And I'm just going to get this platinum. And that's all that matters is getting rich because I'm the greed monster. That's what the film is about. His greed monster is just as bad as the alien god monster. See, I thought the movie was about the friends we made along the way. There, you horny little devils. It's Vampina. I'm sure you've heard of my show before. Frightful films with Vampina, Escort of the Twilight. It's an A rated show because of these D's. <laughs> I'm here to tell you this dark and stormy episode of Death by DVD will be right back after a quick commercial break typical men it's always gotta be quick I'm Vampina escort of the twilight and remember not all vampires suck some blow station a few miles ago and the old man told me it filled her up and everything was fine. Oh, come on. You gotta be kidding me. In the middle of nowhere on an abandoned stretch of highway and my car is going to break down next to the only creepy old cemetery for miles?
It sure is. Well, I guess I'll get out and check the engine. Is someone there? Dismemberment is a thing no one likes to think about, but it happens all the time. With Frightco, you don't have to worry about you or a loved one losing a limb or being eaten by zombies. Ah, ah, help me! Please, please! Ah, 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 help me! Oh my god, help me! Frightco! You can save 6.66% or more on death and dismemberment insurance by switching to Frightco. One of the fun things about talking about the movie is just shining a light on something so ridiculous because I think you can admit that this would be a, a great party movie. This is something that you could have mixed company by just to laugh at how ridiculous. It's just goofy. I think that's what makes it a, a great monster movie in general is this, we have the monster, but it is senseless. There is... I don't think there's anything more than bong rips and pizza for this movie. Like That's why I think it would be a great get-together sort of thing. Maybe like a, a gathering of three, but as far as something to put on, like in the background of a, like a mixed party, I, I want something way more visual than this because so like even well, their like you, their Mister I their know oxygen more than three people. space suits that they wear look like old lame diving equipment and just it's the artistry as far as production design is very disappointing for me in this film and I understand it's on a shoestring and they were on a super tight time frame to make this, but. I just need those elements to really enjoy myself, to transport myself to this CGI terribly moon flying towards Earth. It's just it, like that. My suspension of disbelief just gets fucked with so much in it. I just don't think that for me, because I, 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 I'm trying to think back of how many sequences are, are like that in the movie. That at the very beginning, you've got Earl Bowen and General Dale die. And you're on Earth, and then you go, you have one sequence or so of that. And so I, I never really paid too much attention. I guess it was, I, I mean, we both grew up in that era, so I just kind of passed it off. Like, yeah, it's a 1996 movie, and I, I'm more hyper-fixated on how just terribly cheap the sets were. And But I, I got a lot of enjoyment out of that, that it's kind of like a mystery science theater sort of situation of I'm enjoying this 
looking at the plastic tubing and seeing things like baking tins that have been spray painted black and just taped to the wall. There's a sequence where Xander Berkeley's being an asshole as usual to the entire crew and he's smoking a cigarette and he walks to one of the doors and it begins opening before he fucking presses the button. Somebody must have yelled, you know, hit the goddamn button, Xander. And he pumps it two or three times and the door's halfway open. Shit like that that I giggle over. I mean, it, it's... Uh, what do they call it? A guilty pleasure. It's one of those guilty pleasure situations of admittedly, like, I can't stand here and and fucking argue with you. Like, no, man, it's it's got fucking nuances you don't know about. Like, there's stuff going on. There isn't. There's not a goddamn thing going on. I, I just it's like all, the It's very <laughs> cut and dry bland to me, and that's that's the, the God's honest truth. It's just overall a bland product. Although the monster suit is very nice, it's just overall, it's just... There's nothing there for me. This is one of my most hated eras of films, though. Like when they made like a lot of direct-to-video stuff, and that that Roger Corman remake era when they started remaking all the Roger Corman movies and stuff like that. I mean, it it admittedly, I I think it's a lot of the 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 network movies that end up being the worst. That you had the HBO original, Cinemax, all that Sci-Fi Channel those movies ended up having the greatest ideas and you would get some cool cast people like Xander Berkeley and Dwayne Whitaker in 1996. That's not that bad. Dwayne Whitaker had, had just raped Ving Rhames, or I'm sorry, he watched Ving Rhames get raped in Pulp Fiction. So people across the United States at least knew to cross the street when they saw him. <laughs> it was a pull. Everything about this movie seems right. And you read the synopsis and it's like, all right, this seems okay, and it's for me, I guess, what really pulled me in, and I, I think this is funny, you ended up picking this movie, I had recently seen it, I had recently watched the movie. I gave you two choices, and you, this is the one you went with. I don't think I, what was the other choice, because I think- I cannot remember. Yeah, I was but... going to say, oh, I, will, I don't remember what the other choice was, that might have been the problem. Motherfucker, I will look it up, going through old texts. I, I definitely, since you're going to look this up, I do believe I said, well, I recently saw Within the Rock, and that's how this was settled upon, and just as discourse goes back and forth- as an audience member, hopefully you can look at both of our sides uh, and, and the different spectrums of this year. Because I, I, I truly respect what Nash is saying because I, I feel it and I understand it. And it's there's my no... other one was split second. I see. That's why I didn't pick that, because I've never seen split second. It's so good. Roger Howard, the devil. Come on! I guess we should have done Split Second, and admittedly, uh, we could have done it if I'd have sat and watched it, but no, I watched Within the Rock by Gary J. Tunnicliffe three times this week, and I enjoyed it every goddamn time, but admittedly, I was on drugs all three times. So that, um, I mean, that's not really saying much for me, but... Within the Rock, it's one of those things, if you can take both spectrums of what we've been discussing and, and evaluate it, I think... If you look at it from my angle, you are able to enjoy the movie a little bit more if you can just go into it knowing like there is nothing redeemable about this. It's ridiculously cheap. I, I find it unironically heartwarming. It's one of those movies in that era where everything had to end with a really great up note. It's like an episode of Stargate or something like that where you know the heroes might get hurt but our core people aren't going to and they're all going to have a really jolly joke at the end and they're like driving off to safety at the end of the movie and it's hey you guys want to play video games while we have a little bit of free time and it ends with a laugh track and then the greatest nirvana knockoff song of all time it's fucking great it's called violated we forgot to mention though that uh alan ginsburg from uh cronenberg's naked lunch is in the film 
That's it. The guy with the earring, the uh, the guy who lived that wasn't the gruff metal guy. Oh, Jesus Christ, that is Allen Ginsberg. Wow, he played yeah. Allen Ginsberg or an appropriation yeah. of Allen Ginsberg and Cronenberg's Name at Lunch. And I immediately knew the dude from the Stone Age. I don't know why, because I've seen that movie a bunch. Good old Bradford Tatum. And Brian Krause, what happened to him? He disappeared. His face got kind of weird. He was looking, on though. Charm for like 12 years. Oh, wow. That's all I got. Wow, Charmed. <laughs> so it sounds like we need to move on to the next movie. Within the Rock, 1996. I made for TV. I will defend the movie's honor in the sense that it's a fun fucking ride and advisable for Halloween. One of the big parts of trying to link everything together from the 1950s to now is not so much a theme. For a while, everything was green and slimy. And Well, well it actually can be a bit of a theme because... This film, Invaders from Mars, all kind of have somewhat roots in the 1950s. So does The Green Slime. Blood Freak, probably not as much, but they all like kind of stem from the same kind of thing. You can argue that Blood Freak's roots of the 1960s are an anti-60s roots because the whole point of the movie is trying to steer people away from the peace and love and doing drugs and eating turkey <laughs> and all sorts of things like that. You know, that movie may be way ahead of its time with veganism, too. It could be possibly the very first vegan horror movie of all time. But the next movie we're moving on to, I think we can both unanimously agree, I love this movie, you love this movie. I think we both surprised ourselves with how much we liked this movie. I know we've discussed this on a previous episode of Death by DVD, and by previous I mean like... You're probably talking like 2011, yeah. maybe even nine. I'd, I'd say maybe the original format of the show, the, the first two or three years of it, but we're talking about a movie by a guy named John Gulliger, Feast 2005. This could end up being uh, like a little bit of the Chris Farley show where you just go, that was awesome. But what I enjoy so much about Feast, which is base plot description, um, a bunch of people are in a bar in the middle of nowhere desert and they get sieged by a bunch of crazy horny ass monsters and the thing that really makes this movie different and special is it takes horror movie tropes and turns them on their head and really like fucks with your expectations of what you're going to get in a monster movie because the hero guy the guy who's going to come in the rock you know Dwayne Johnson basically pops up and he immediately gets killed and like a child who like will always live a horror movie. They get killed really quick. So it's just flipping everything from like a horror movie genre on its head and doing something completely different. And that's not the only thing that's amazing. It has a great sense of humor. It's insanely over the top, violent and perverted at times. And it's got Henry Rollins in it. Always a plus, but I always just love this movie because it is just a rip roaring good time of a horror film. More importantly, it's got Dwayne Whitaker. That's right. The whole wraparound. Dwayne Whitaker double feature. Happy fucking Halloween. If that doesn't get you frightened, I don't know what will. Uh, you also left out B-Gets. Don't know how you could leave out our guy B-Gets, because he's the fucking best. No one is going to know who you're speaking uh, of when bullshit. you say B-Gets. Everybody knows who B-Gets is. Everybody in the world. A capital B, capital G, E, T, Z, money sign. B-Gets. That's Balthazar Getty for all of you that if Alexander Nash is right, which is going to frighten me, don't know who the fuck B gets is. Yes, this movie stars fucking Balthazar Getty and the director, John Gulliger. He's the son of one of my favorite people in the world, Clue Gulliger. So many people love Clue Gulliger for the wrong fucking reasons. And I, I just like the next guy. I love Return of the Living Dead. 
He's a terrific horror actor, if you want to call him that. But his history before that is fascinating and brilliant. His work before that is fucking great. He's been on a hundred different Western TV shows. One of the greatest real deal stuntmen left in the fucking world. A golden age hero. Worked with some of the coolest people on the planet. Probably has more stories than fucking anybody. You could sit down and hear a whole realm and world that has completely disappeared. The late, great, wonderful Sage Stallone made a movie called Vic, a short film. Pretty much about that, a washed-up former Western actor trying to get on a last leg. Really, really beautiful thing. Uh, we don't get anything out of this, but I'm sure you can get yourself a copy at Grindhouse Releasing. Check them out. I, it actually might be out of print now as I say that. I've done that a few times, told people to go find a movie. And you can't, because I'm a dick. But John Gulliger, this was his first foray into things. Alexander Nash, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more in depth about Project Greenlight, because I'll be honest with you, I actually never watched the show, my first interview. Oh, I never watched it either. I just know generally what the show was. And the show was produced by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And it was a subsidiary company under Miramax or Weinstein. I'm not sure which, probably Miramax at that time. Yeah, And they basically decided to do a reality TV show of greenlighting a movie. Everybody, you had all these people with scripts who like, you know, signed up to be on a reality show. They pick a script, they pick a director, and then they do behind the scenes of making the film, all that kind of stuff. And they turned out, I think, three movies. After this one, they kind of took a big pause. I think they've made another one, but I don't think there was a reality show around it. But this one is kind of the one that killed the show more than anything because... A, people are losing favor with the show in itself to begin with. And B, it was just a hell of a messy-ass shoot. And the executive producers didn't come off so well in it because they were just disinterested, wanted everything. They were cutting scenes left and right. Thanks for nothing, Affleck. They just wanted to cheap out because they just didn't have faith in the project after they like bought the script hired the director, they lost faith in John Gulliger as a director. And just like, Which You're is not a lot of fucking footage. nerve. The guy that fucking starred in Gigli saying that he didn't have faith in a project like Feast, that's kind of insulting. I would have taken that fucking personally because the, the end product, no matter what happened, and I guess this must be a real sentiment and statement to John Gulliger as, as an artist, being fucked over so much, this movie still, it's great. It's, it's great. I mean, and... If you've never seen the full series, and we won't be talking about the other two movies, but they get progressively weirder and crazier and more violent, and then the last shot of the series is completely just this weird, unexpected, stupid ending, and it's just like, great, somebody who does not give a shit, and they're just making fun exploitation cinema just, I mean, to consume, because that's what they love, and that's what these movies are. I, I see in, in many, many reviews of this movie, people like to refer to it as a great throwback to a long-lost era. I, I don't feel that way whatsoever, and John Gulliger is a really versatile guy, but I don't know a lot about him. I know who his dad is, and I don't know how he grew up whatsoever, so I can't He have, was like... involved in being, like, a uh, photographer, cameraman, that sort of thing. He worked for years in the industry, like, you know, small budget stuff, but he ran camera mostly. Yeah, but I mean, I, I don't know, like, if he's into fucking heavy metal or horror or things like that, but what I can see from this movie is is with so many problems, especially with mega producers, you had Wes Craven, Ben Affleck, and Matt Damon, uh, those three, and if they're against you and him still managing to get the product done the way that it's it's released to us, uh, the the comedic nature of the movie is still... 
it's not it, like because sometimes there's movies that are too funny and they're not graphic enough, or there's movies that are too graphic and they're not funny enough. This movie's comedic nature almost has nothing to do. It's almost incidental with what's happening in the movie. It's it's very clear you're watching a movie. I don't consider it a throwback to anything whatsoever. It just has a really nice flow between the comedy and the over-the-top disgusting gore and the violence aspects. I mean, then out of nowhere, there's like little small twists that happen. The monster changes what they look like. And just there's a lot of crazy ideas thrown in it. And they just kind of try to get them all together in one thing. I will say for 2005, though, this was an era of Henry Rollins being very ultra-masculine. And as he's gotten a little bit older in the last 10, 15 years... Hank has chilled out a lot. He is a much more down-to-earth guy. But if you grew up in the 90s or the 80s, Henry Rollins was always... He was a frightening image. He was a visage of a punk god, pretty much. But he, I think, was the top-line idea of masculinity. He's this huge buff guy. And then in Feast, you were presented this, like, weaselly, completely ridiculous idea of Henry Rollins. He's like one of the caricatures. Why do I like to say words that I deeply know I can't pronounce, that he portrays in the music video for Liar. He's this motivational speaker that's married, a sleazebag, trying to pick up girls, and throughout the movie ends up losing his pants, and you get to watch, to me, I mean, in this era, 2005, one of the most masculine ideas of, you know, a badass, fucking avenging, kick-ass punk rocker. He's got these pink, ridiculous yoga pants on, and it's incidental to the movie. It's something that happens in the sake of survival. He needs pants, but it's one of those things of like, (laughs) holy shit, Henry Rollins in pink pants. And that's kind of lost now. I don't think a lot of the charm, a lot of the things that are funny about this movie are funny anymore. Like, you were bringing up the horror tropes that are made fun of in this movie. When the film begins, we get little character biographies that tell us their life expectancy, and one of them is Jason Mewes who is playing himself Jason Mewes, and it just simply states he's exceeded life's expectations already, which was fucking hysterical in 2005 because everyone knew he was actively addicted to heroin. Now you can't make fun of that. Now now it's one of those things that he's been clean so long, it's really rude to make fun of. Like, if you fucking make fun of Steve-O now, it's like, well, he's come a long way. Come on, have some heart. I I know people wanted to, like, throw around the term throwback, but it was... Not so much a throwback as much as just really embracing the monster movie, the horror film, the -the over-the-top gore film, and making that the best of your ability, and maybe flipping some of those ideas around to make it slightly more interesting uh, kind of along the way. And this was also the first movie of Marcus Dunstan as a writer, a script writer, and his partner. What is his Patrick Melton, maybe? Yes. Oh, man, I pulled that one out of my ass. Look at the brain on Brad. But uh, they went on to do like the the collector movies. They've went on to have kind of a, a more horror based career over the years, you know, in and out. They for a while there, they were attached to writing a uh, Halloween three script for the the Rob Zombie Halloween film. So they've uh, exceeded their expectations in Hollywood, I would say. And this being their first film, it's an amazingly like measured and kind of a a fun little experience and just taking things that everyone loves about horror films. If you are a horror fan and exploiting those ideas to the, like the nth degree and just taking you on this really wild ride. And like what, for instance, at the end, the, the survivors get in uh, what is it? A, a, a firebird. It's either a firebird or a trans am. I can't remember. Or trans am yeah. like, and they're getting ready to pull away from this bar. while the triumphant, you know, like metal song or whatever plays in the background. And 
they can't get the car started. And it just sits there for like a good 30 seconds then. And then the car starts and they pull off and the song starts again. So it's just like, it's not even so much like parody. It is parody, but it's also a loving tribute to these things. It's not so much like a scary movie style parody because the horror scenes are handled with humor as well as a, a sense of reality. So we're not just making joke after joke after joke. Um, but the jokes they do make for the most part land. Um, I'm sure there's some stuff that is joked about in the film that would be considered incredibly objectionable by now because this is uh, more along the lines of South Park humor than anything. It's definitely early 2000s humor, and we, we brought this up on the last episode, but decades don't change as swiftly as we like to remember things. And so a lot of it is really... it's it's it, There's a lot of unfair portrayals against women. There's a lot of unconventional portrayals of men. I think there's some dialogue that you shouldn't repeat and can't say anymore. And it's like Dwayne Whitaker's character. He's extorting sex. He's abusive and becomes a very simple. Well, God, I wouldn't say a sympathetic character, but it's fucking Dwayne Whitaker. You can't help but like him, even if he's playing the most morose, horrible thing in the world that his, his delivery, his performances are always hysterical. He's always a gem to me. And possibly one of the reasons that I liked within the rock so much is though his performance is brief, Fucking Dwayne Whitaker. He's just going to be there having a really bad time. He just doesn't ever seem. He was great in Vice Academy, too. It's my favorite performance by him. <laughs> it really a, is. It's he a just good does performance. He's a little character and he's out. Love him. If anything, I hope our audience spends Halloween watching Vice Academy because uh, that that's a great series. No, no, no. Vice Academy, too. It's very specific because Vice Academy, too, has Bimbo Cop. But a lot of the tropes that are played upon in this movie is like uh, you said something a little while ago about how people kind of take this as a throwback. But at the same time period, you had the Tales from the Crypt movies. And this has a lot of similar. Well, this isn't the same yeah, time. Period, there you go. But... Demon Knight is the best like like meta or metaphor, but like simile, like they're very similar films. I mean, it's a few years before that, but it, this even plays on a, a, a much more, which is funny. That's an HBO production. This is a little bit more of an HBO production. If you're an eighties kid and you know what I mean? And I think you do. I think I said that backward, whatever it's, it's, it appeals much more to what you wanted to see out of things. And I think maybe that's where people get the idea of it being, Oh, this is a great throwback. But something like Fiesta is really of its own type, and when you look at the tropes that it plays upon, Demon Knight is one thing I wanted to bring up, uh, how it's everyone against something else, the Night of the Living Dead concept, the pressure cooker concept, Jaws, it's all these same things, and we're just working with a completely ludicrous idea here, and it, it, it is looking at it as a time capsule piece. A lot of the movies I think that we've discussed throughout Monster Meltdown, our Monster Month celebrating Halloween 2021, have been great time capsule pieces. You can look at a lot of these films, even if you weren't from that era, like The Green Slime, and enjoy it seeing how these things were made, seeing what people were into. You look at The Creature from the Black Lagoon, how mesmerizing it must have been to see it in 3D, and, and we discussed how now, 70, 80 years later, it's a bit wonky watching it being so perfectly restored because it really neglects to focus on how it was filmed in 3d you look at all of these things you look at within the rock it is such a ridiculous piece and it even goes to show you how hollywood always gets things a few years off this whole movie's got this weird nirvana-esque themed soundtrack a couple years after cobain eats a shotgun so none of it really is in place when you come to something like feast i think everything perfectly is in place not only the era but the attitude the mood uh, to say for a less extent the soul of the movie even though it could be considered, could be considered isn't the right thing to say. It definitely can be considered 
a very crude and crass movie. Every every perfect thing that you want out of a horror movie, I think, is inside of it. One of my favorite scenes in this film, it pointed out a trope I had never paid attention to before, and now every time I see it in a film, I always go, ah, feast. It's the creature autopsy scene where you have somebody with their dangerous creatures around and all of a sudden people who are not scientists, people who are not doctors are opening this thing up, trying to figure out what makes this monster tick. And in this film, they like quite hilariously point out of just like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't know what any of this is. There's, just, there's fucking monster guts. I don't know if it's an alien. I don't know what the fuck this thing is. Well, you know what that reminded me of was uh, the, the scene in From Dust Till Dawn when somebody says, does anyone know anything about vampires? Has anyone read a book or anything about it? And Tom Savini's sex machine says, well, what do you mean, like a time life book? That It's the very same situation, that, that awkward scenario where everyone's trying to figure out what the fuck is going on and the disbelief has to be broken. Where, oh, I don't believe in vampires, I don't believe in zombies, I don't believe in monsters or whatever, finally comes into the realization, even the harshest person, in this case it's Dwayne Whitaker, who comes down the stairs after accidentally being shot and doesn't believe whatsoever it's monsters until he finds a headless corpse and a monster's body in his bar. I would say, like, for me, though, my biggest gripe overall of the movie is that the way they dispatch the last monster in the film kind of rips off my favorite like death of a killer in a horror film and that is just before dawn absolutely fisting the monster down the throat and killing it that way i think it works a little bit better in uh and just before dawn it has Agreed. a lot more power to it but this this version isn't so bad and it's it's acted well and all that shit it's just i think the uh the metaphor is more like appropriately applied in just before dawn in this situation, I think you've got a reference to Just Before Dawn and more of an homage to Joe Pilato, Day of the Dead, trying to meld all of these things together. And I said a little while back, I don't know much about John Gulliger as a guy, but I think he obviously is a horror fan. I mean, you look at his career. He made he... that zombie movie, remember? The one with Anthony Michael Hall that I really liked, and it's a sci-fi channel cheap piece of shit. Zombie Night. It, it actually yeah. is a pretty adequate movie. It, it wasn't a disappointment, and it, it this is something that I would say for the most of his directorial I mean, he he did a Project Greenlight episode, Feast, Feast 2, Sloppy Seconds, Feast 3, The Happy Finish, Piranha 3, Double D, Zombie Night, Children of the Corn, Runaway, and he's got a film in post-production right now. But even Children of the Corn, Runaway, it's a fucking late-end-of-the-game Children of the Corn sequel. So by no means whatsoever am I going to say it good, but it's an adequate movie that was... A, you're able to finish it. Something with John that I think is 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 admirable and very evident when you watch his work he even with a shoestring budget if he has to make a shitty movie he goes and does the best he can he's a gun he's the same as the the people that we have so much admiration for and talk about constantly on this show John Carpenter Lucio Fulci all of those guys he's given a task and he goes out and does it and I feel he clearly must have some sort of passion some sort of love for horror because he puts so much into it and Feast is one of the you know, tri triumphant things that uh, you can look at, not just with his career, but when horror fans are able to do something, not uh, like, and I'm not trying to shit talk anybody, but Rob Zombie, he loves horror. He, he, he does. And he's, he, he, who doesn't want to be him? He's a rock star, rock star by day, horror director by night does. That's it, everybody's dream. He's a cool guy, but he loves very, very, very specific things. And when he makes horror movies, he puts those very, very, very specific things into them. And some people love it. It drives some folks wild. 
me and why I'm making this reference, it, it's less than impressive because it's a bunch of stuff that I recognize and I know and I understand. I get it. I love those things too, but it's it's overwhelming. There are certain aspects of horror. There are certain things that are fantastical, but people take very, very seriously, and they take those things too seriously. They take things that are trivial or not not even something that I think sometimes the directors and writers meant to be as important as it's taken by some fans. And you look at something like Feast, all of those points that could have been taken too far, all of these homages that could have been pushed too far, they, they never go into fifth gear. They always stay right where they need to go. They need to stop where they need to stop. The jokes stop where they need to stop. When the action happens, when the splatter happens, everything is very articulate and well-placed. Everything... I don't want to say is immaculate, but when you want a splatter fest, the last half of this movie is nothing but just a gross freak show. Judah Friedlander's rotting. Uh, he's dripping maggots throughout the entire movie. It's absolutely disgusting. It horrifies you. And even though it's silly, it really is. It's got some jump scares in it that work, which I fucking hate jump scares. And they work well, so well. It's got so this. many comedy elements to it that the comedy never sacrifices the horror, and the so horror never sacrifices the comedy. They work in tandem very well. And it's not one of those things that we're making, like, you can make fun of the horror elements in it, but it never seems to be like like pointing out how trivial horror films are, how dumb they are. It has a, a, an intense love for horror films and the jokes they made are jokes of love. And it works for, I think the benefit of the movie, I think for the final product, I, I, what, 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 what would you give this? I mean, I would say it's a four star movie. Yeah, basically. And I think that it's diminishing turns with each one because they get cheaper and cheaper, but I still think they're fun quality movies to watch. Uh, I would suggest watch all of the, the feast movies, especially since, I'd say in the last 10 years, they've tapered off and no one really talks about them or um, has thought about them in a while. Like, check out the Feast movies. They're definitely worth your time. And when it comes to monster films in the 2000s, I brought this up at the beginning of the show, and I, Alexander Nash, was speaking of it on the Creature from the Black Lagoon episode. The direction and genre has really changed. Monster movies have become very, very huge, big-budget things, even to the likes of Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia. They're, they're not conventional horrifying monster movies anymore and of course I know there's an indie crowd of people out there screaming Hank you're wrong I, I'm not ignoring independent film I, I, I recognize and know there are thousands of indie horror monster movies that come out every day but when it comes to the genre the, the, the idea of monster movies they're really gone the the horrifying late night fun something like Within the Rock it's goofy it really doesn't have a lot of redeemability but there is something Something to be enjoyed about the monster. Something to be enjoyed knowing that these people are going to be eaten. You you begin a movie with a cast of six, you know most of them are going to die. And I think something like Feast really feeds, no pun intended, upon that. You you know what you're getting into. And when you say the word monster movie to people, I know some people think of Frankenstein and the villagers chasing him with the pitchforks, but other people think of the creature from the Black Lagoon and sloppy, weird, gooey monsters from space and... It's just an endless genre. You can really consider anything a monster. You can consider men monsters. You could do kaiju movies. We could have gone on and on and on and on and on and on with this, but we're ending it here in the 2000s. Going into the teens and going into the 20s, it's, I think, something we can continue with. Monster Meltdown maybe continues next year or we'll bring it up another time, but unfortunately we end with Feast. Well, I would say, like, probably the order of like 
to check out the order i would say like the you know importance to watch i'd say feast is number one creature from the black lagoon maybe blood freak <laughs> <laughs> uh i'd say invaders from mars and or actually within the rock is on the bottom of the list and invaders from mars is probably just above that and then I'm just talking more of like a fun thing because especially if you're doing like a Halloween marathon and all that business, there's a certain way you have to pace these things out and program them. So, but like feast, if you were actually making a horror marathon though, feast would be your last film because it's a crowd pleaser. I would show that always last because it is like rip roaring. Your audience is tired. They're ready to like get out of their, uh, you know, however long your marathon has been feast is going to get them like standing in the seats again and really like, end your night perfectly if anything blood freak <laughs> needs to be the movie uh, theoretically if you're throwing a party and you're, you're running it the death by dvd way this might need to be the beer run movie when everybody splits up and half the party is going away for a little while because i was going to interrupt you and go what the fuck man people need to see blood freak but yeah no really this is something that i don't think average audiences are going to be able to take but i think that was my favorite movie on this entire marathon and being able to talk about it was a lot of fun, and some of the difficulty with this episode is genuine, especially being a critic, genuinely liking movies sometimes really throws a, a wrench into everything, because it's like, well, there are things that I appreciate and like about it, but some of them don't really matter, and when it comes to Within the Rock, it's such a throwaway, goofy movie, but it can get your gears going. Well, if you'd like, I could quickly program how you could lay this selection of movies out for, like, a marathon on Halloween or whatnot. You start with Creature from the Black Lagoon. Maybe you dip into, say, I'd say probably Invaders from Mars, then Blood <laughs> Freak. Then you're going to want to probably go to... Within the Rock probably needs to go right before Feast because you need to get kind of bored before you get... Like, you need to really, like... Within the Rock is kind of the I'm so tired, I need to take a nap movie. So you could put that right before Feast, right before you send them home happy. And then you could put um, Green Slime right before that, like right before uh, Within the Rock. So that's I'd say that's the appropriate way to lay those out. So we finally have given our audience something. We've got a few days left until Halloween when this episode comes out. So now if you don't have any plans, you know what to show your audience. We have ended with a real treat instead of a trick. You actually have a pretty terrific list, a great way to enjoy your Halloween. And speaking of which, Happy Halloween from Death by DVD. It's another year. We just won't seem to go away. I'm sure we'll be back next year for Halloween. But this has been fun. I think uh, last year we did an exploration of slashers throughout the ages, and this seemed to be a bit more rewarding. I think we hit some higher notes with this. And personally, for me, I enjoyed going over a lot of these movies. It made my October a little bit more... I wouldn't say spooky, but definitely monstrous. Festive. It's festive, it's monstrous, and it's nice going back through and having, uh, being able to appreciate movies. So much, so many of us really love the 80s and the 70s, and we get hyper fixated on certain eras. And when you can break those walls down and go back and look at something that is out of your comfort zone, I think it makes horror a lot more fun. So that's it. This is the end of Monster Month. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed it, tell us what you think. If you run this marathon also, let us know. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Slasher. Just look for Death by DVD. 
You can also email us at deathbydvd at deathbydvd.com or just go to our website, www.deathbydvd.com and leave us a message there. I am Hank, the world's greatest. Happy Halloween from Death by DVD. Until next time, the ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.